0: Hello, my name's Justin La Clue, and I'm here today with...
1: Will Sloan.
0: And today, we're talking about an up-and-coming director with two feature films under his belt. It is a wunderkind called George
1: Lucas. So, I was interested to do this topic when Justin proposed it, because I had actually... Never seen either of George Lucas's pre-Star Wars movies.
0: Star Wars. Wait, he made more movies than just <laughs> THX 1138 and
1: American Graffiti. <laughs> we'll get to that later, Justin. I ha- I have some shocking developments to tell you about. Uh oh. I had never seen THX 1138. I'd never seen American Graffiti. I think the reasons for that are that Star Wars looms just so large. They come to define George Lucas, and I don't love Star Wars, so I never really sought out the earlier ones. But there is a popular counter narrative to george lucas which is that it's sort of a shame that star wars came along because it turned him into a mogul it turned him into a businessman he didn't direct another movie for 22 years after star wars and that next movie was the phantom menace and in the early 70s he was one of those guys he was one of those francis ford coppola martin scorsese brian de palma he was in that crew he was in that crew of New Hollywood Rebels, guys who were going to overthrow the studio system or, or what have you. And he made really interesting movies before he was uh, tempted over to the dark side. And we lost someone really special.
0: Now, George Lucas, for me, I was a big fan of Star Wars. I was so excited for, you know, The Phantom Menace when it came out. I watched those, uh, you know, THX re-releases of Star Wars on tape endlessly, just over and over again. Oh, it's my good friend Leonard Maltin talking with George Lucas at, at the beginning beginning. beginning of every tape. And eventually, man, I was just burned out of Star Wars. And I did think of George Lucas as one of those guys that you read about his early career. He was not only part of that crew, but he was pushing forward with tons of wild ideas of stuff that he wanted to do. And it friggin' sucks that he only ever got to make two films. Now, I say it sucks, which is weird to say because it seems like, ah, the world was against him, but it wasn't. He could have pretty much done whatever he wanted. It's not like he was at a loss of resources later on in his life.
1: I have always kind of felt that that romantic narrative of George Lucas's career, the idea that, ah, what might have been had Star Wars not come along, I always kind of felt that that was maybe a little misguided. I've always felt that if he had more to give us, he would have given it to us
0: now george lucas from people who have met him uh say he is an incredibly pessimistic and depressed individual <laughs> that the weight of star wars essentially has frozen him from making any other motion pictures that there is like a weird kind of expectation, I guess, he sees on himself or his business partners. I don't know. Is this a, like a situation like Peter Jackson being forced to make, you know, those Hobbit films that he didn't want to touch
1: the 10 foot pole because he had to keep people employed? Oh, my God. Get, like, give me a break. If George Lucas actually feels that way, he should just look at his good friend Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg has made like 10 Star Warses in his life. Like, he didn't see him after Raiders of the Lost Ark or after Jaws, like, getting paralyzed and turning in, and being like, uh, I can't I can't make another movie. There's there's immense pressure on me. I'm just gonna make Jaws merchandise for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, but George Lucas is not Steven Spielberg. I'm not saying I have any sympathy for George Lucas. I agree he's
1: not. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying
0: it's a bummer. Like, even me as someone, I'd like to make more movies. I'm not making them right now. <laughs> like, I could see, you know, George's position. I wish I was also a billionaire in some way. <laughs> but, you know. (laughs) We all have our own problems, I guess. But we're going to talk about his movies. Uh, You watched THX 1138. Did you get a chance to watch a short film that he made that the feature film was based on?
1: Uh, No, I did not watch the short film. So
0: it's basically the same thing, except it doesn't have any kind of narrative. So the dystopian theme, you can read that into it, but it's not really touched upon. There's no dialogue. It's all garbled. And it has... A bunch of the same kind of visual flourishes that the feature film does.
1: So I think it would be easy to talk about like how different THX 1138 is from Star Wars. I mean, it is different in a lot of ways. It's kind of a brainy sci-fi, it's slow paced, it's moody, whereas Star Wars is you know, very visceral, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Childlike, I would say. Certainly a movie that really appeals to the child in all of us. Star Wars isn't exactly what you call a brainy movie. You know, THX 1138, it feels like the kind of the road not taken. But then on the other hand, I think the two movies have a certain amount of aesthetic Kinship, you know. Well,
0: I should point out that earlier on, George Lucas, when he was in, um, you know, film school, he was all about pure cinema. He was very much inspired by like the National Film Board of Canada guys, like Arthur Lipset and Twenty One Eighty Seven film that didn't have any narrative, that didn't have any characters, that really interested him. And that's kind of, I mean, there's still a narrative in THX 1138, but you can see the ideas of that in the feature film version as well. But going back to what we were talking about, like, aesthetics, they
1: are fairly similar. Yeah, all those, like, white hallways they're very like star wars and uh, at least certain parts of star wars like you know the the scenes where they're like on darth vader's turf for example like those are the sets are very clean the visual style is like more spare and austere than you sometimes remember it being. You can see a lot of that in THX 1138.
0: Yeah, with Star Wars, I remember George Lucas saying at one point that he wanted it to feel dirty and lived in as well because those Flash Gordon serials that were the inspiration for it that was a very plastic. We just built it and threw them on set because this is going to be consumed incredibly qu- quickly and never be thought of again.
1: Feeling, yeah, like because Star Wars has all those scenes on like Tatooine. I mean, one of the things that's good about Star Wars, one of the things that people love about it, are you know wh- when you go to the canteen, that famous, that famous canteen scene, you see, uh, you know, a hundred different aliens and you're always, and you're thinking about, wow, there are probably a hundred different stories with all these aliens. It feels like a universe where there's stuff happening past the edges of the frame you know that was one of his great accomplishments with with star wars
0: yeah that cantina whatever garbage rick baker had in his shop yeah (laughs) it was a werewolf guy i guess and um, i
1: don't know some other weirdos anyway getting back to thx 1138 it is a classic dystopian story i'm
0: 12 years old i love dystopian novels fahrenheit 451 brave new world 1984 stick
1: it into my face yep it is definitely in that lineage you know you got your surveillance state You got your society that... Uh, cannot express emotion and is forbidden from uh, from love. Equilibrium! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forbidden from having sex. I mean, uh, man, I keep seeing these things and I keep thinking, what was the uh, uh, what was the popular base of support to create this society? But you know, I guess you're not supposed to ask that question. Well, you know, it happens, man. It happens. Anyway, everyone in this society has a name that is three letters and four numerals. You know, everyone is reduced to just a cog in the machine. And everyone is force-fed a diet of drugs that keeps them compliant as I said, sex is illegal. Uh, Everyone wears the same white uniform. And the protagonist is, you know, the middle of the middle of the middle, the most normal guy. He's THX 1138, played by Robert Duvall. Robert
0: Duvall, bald, like every actor in the film, and they actually did shave their heads for the role. He's going through life emotion-free. He works in a robot factory, building up those bots who are then police officers that keep him down. And one day, the Uh, mate that he has in his apartment switches out his pills and he starts to feel something. This plot is just so tropey and we've seen it a million times in every dystopian fiction. And it doesn't really interest me. Anytime we get into that stuff, I'm like, ugh. But anytime we get into the abstract stuff in this movie, that's what I like. And that's why I like the short more, where it's all those kind of, you know, visual and sonic ideas without plot kind of, you know, distracting it from what's happening. Yeah,
1: I mean, I can see why he was interested in pure cinema. It's, it you know, it is definitely a mood piece. It, you definitely do like you almost feel like you're living in this surveillance state and you're being... You almost feel like you're on the drug that these characters are on and you're just being sort of numbed into this state of compliance.
0: It starts with... The viewer being jerked around so much, like you're looking through fuzzy cameras that are in mirrors that they take their medication out of. You hear the background of people just talking casually about torturing someone. I think that's where the movie's, you know, it's strongest when you're getting all of these images. And like you just said, like it kind of numbs you as you watch it. Robert Duvall, who starts as kind of a character who's discovering himself, becomes a literal cipher as the film plays out. And he just stops talking as he makes this escape. And it's just an excuse for Lucas to throw as many images as he can of at the audience. Very kind of like out there, look at the angle of Robert Duvall driving this futuristic vehicle in just an endless tunnel.
1: So I do think there's a lot to admire about the film. I think it is a masterpiece of production design. When I look at his early movies, and I compare them to the other filmmakers who were You know, really active at this time, including Spielberg, frankly, including uh, Scorsese, De Palma. George Lucas still strikes me as the least interesting one. We don't have a lot to work with in just these two films, but like, you're right that this plot is very tropey, it's very familiar, and a lot of this is just a personal preference. I didn't personally enjoy watching this movie, I didn't like the mood, I didn't like being stuck in all of these. Uh, oppressive white rooms and having Robert Duvall. Well, sorry, Robert Duvall is obviously a great actor, but it's like everyone is so, so much a cipher. The whole society is so sort of purposely textureless. But
0: you also get Donald Pleasance doing his wild man best and just spot Sid Haig showing up
1: as well. Yeah. Okay. You're right. There, there are, there are some good people. I felt difficulty having this movie get its tender hooks in me because it's so oppressive <laughs> yeah it's so so oppressive this might be my problem though because you know if i if i look at it if i try to muster some sense of objectivity i think it it is clearly a job well done and it really does cast a spell you know what i mean but do i really love what he's saying with the movie. Do I, do I really think it's like thematically all that interesting? I don't know. Well,
0: I mean, uh, George Lucas would agree with you because the producer of this film, Francis Ford supposedly made him a bet, uh, during the shooting of THX 1138, where he went, George, can you just like write a script? that has mass appeal (laughs) that people would like that isn't just oppressive. George Lucas was quoting a saying, THX was about real things that were going on and the problems we're faced with. I realized after THX that these problems are so real that most of us have to face those things every day. So we're in a constant state of frustration. That just makes us more depressed than we were before. So I made a film where essentially we can get rid of some of those frustrations, the feeling that everything seemed futile. And that film was American Graffiti.
1: Okay, well this is an I iconic film again i'd never seen it until yesterday but it's still an iconic film boomers (laughs) yeah yeah the quintessential boomer movie the quintessential one long night movie with a bunch of teens who are graduating you know the dazed and confused of its time
0: this movie is kind of famous for having a non-stop pop soundtrack throughout it which helped make it a big hit that you could go see this movie and oh man remember all of those hit songs from a time so long ago only a decade
1: <laughs> uh, yeah okay can i can i pause on that for a sec 50s nostalgia was so huge in the 1970s it wasn't that long ago. They were nostalgic for like twelve years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, man, it was after the war. The economy was kicking. Everybody had every opportunity in the world.
1: I guess so much of it was just that Vietnam happened in in between, and also I guess maybe the Kennedy assassination. And for so many of these fucking boomers who you know never had a goddamn problem in their lives, these two. Have... <laughs> Sorry, that's not fair. That's <laughs> wrong. The the, the, Viet, the Vietnam War was terrible.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean George Lucas and John Millius, they wanted to make. A apocalypse Now after THX 1138, but the financial failure of THX 1138 completely destroyed those plans. But
1: anyway, I, I will say that uh, despite the mean thing I said about the boomers just now, uh, which I don't believe.
0: How dare you be, be mean to boomers? Well, yeah,
1: I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? What I will say is, like, a lot of I, I can understand that a lot of the power of American Graffiti comes from the idea that it it perfectly, for that generation, perfectly captured that feeling of one last good night, or at least one last night before everything changed, before everything went wrong.
0: I would say that, yeah, that that's true. American Graffiti is not a film that I go back and revisit i saw it a long time ago and i was like yeah that's fine and watching it again uh this week i thought it was good (laughs) like i didn't hate
1: it had the same reaction now can we analyze why is it that we don't love it. Boomers! <laughs> yeah, boomers. Obviously, it's well made. I mean, the pace that he keeps up, all of the stories that he juggles, you know, the four guys and all the people they encounter. And the fact that there's there's actually no music on the soundtrack, but what you hear constantly are like...
0: Songs. Every scene has a song and it was all written in the script. I think it's like 44 tracks or
1: something like that. Yeah, so it's a remarkable the the way that he I mean I know that I saw George Lucas do an interview once where he was talking about seeing the restored or the uh, the version of Touch of Evil that was changed to Orson Welles's intentions and the opening scene of Touch of Evil they took out the Henry Mancini music and they restored the soundtrack to the way that he wanted you heard like music coming from everywhere in the scene. And George Lucas saw that and he was like, oh, it! Orson Welles did it before me. At
0: the same time, like the music is also kind of, you know, the propeller of the story that we're seeing that like the characters are being pushed almost by the music that's surrounding them at all times. Do you think that has links in, and I'm sure that George Lucas saw this movie, something like Scorpio Rising, even though that film is used ironically in that short.
1: Yeah, I wonder. The other one that's often cited as as an important movie for this is mean streets which also has that all pop soundtrack
0: and martin scorsese has said straight out that yeah he took that from scorpio rising
1: i would assume that george lucas did too since he seemed to have been conversant with experimental film at the time
0: and so american graffiti like it's a fine film i mean it's fun to hang out with all your friends like ron howard who is a huge jerk uh pretty much in the
1: film i was impressed by how much of an asshole everyone in the movie is i kind of expected it to be a little bit more cloying and twee than it was was. Like,
0: oh, wasn't it good back in the day? And nah, Richard Dreyfuss, selfish. Everyone is selfish in the movie, which I guess is a good representation of the people <laughs> around that time.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Again, I had a little bit of trouble loving anyone in the movie I feel like this movie was such a massive hit that people must have identified with it. And I struggle to identify with this movie. Well,
0: none of these characters are any reflections of us growing up at all.
1: <laughs> like, I'll tell you, I mean, I watched Superbad and I see a lot of myself in that movie. But... <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go, yeah. But in American Graffiti, the driving these gigantic cars, <laughs> that Ron Howard just gives it to one of his friends who's clearly going to break it. What are you doing, Ron? Anyway,
1: I want to be respectful of this movie because he clearly did a very good job at it and i think it does capture something it does capture a certain like like it's not just the last moment of innocence but you also see the innocence fraying you see that you see that it's actually not so innocent in this last moment of innocence and everyone's kind of an asshole i think that's a good nuanced thing that the movie was able to accomplish
0: yeah the idea of all of these characters are going on to the next part of their lives but a lot of them are just dead ends like ron howard is going to get married the guy who loves to drag race he's already pretty much at the end of the road like there's nothing else for him he gets beaten well technically doesn't get beaten by Harrison Ford but he's like I was just so slow I would have lost if he hadn't crashed the car and
1: you know that this won't continue after you know they won't stay friends after
0: exactly like we were friends with these people in high school because we were trapped in high school and that's pretty much it <laughs> and then it ends and you know you get the famous title card at the end that omits any women of the film <laughs> supposedly because George Lucas was like oh that would make uh, the title card uh the credits too long if we added another one so just the guys and you hear what happened to them you know one of them died in Vietnam the other one died in a car crash Ron Howard happily married and I think Richard Dreyfuss is a writer somewhere is what the tower card says and what's interesting about American graffiti is that there was a sequel that nobody ever talks about uh, more American graffiti where people's lives are even more miserable in that movie and you get some fun experimentation where like the uh, Vietnam segment is shot in like cinema verite there's like a Woodstock one another one is shot kind of like an American sitcom but it's miserable
1: I know that more American graffiti has its defenders, it has its fans, but it seems a fundamental misunderstanding of what the whole appeal of the first American graffiti was, which is that all of this stuff hasn't happened yet, and yet is this structuring absence. It's this thing that's weighing on everything we see.
0: I also think that the appeal of American graffiti is that people like the music and... They like to feel like, ah, we're teenagers again. This is what it was like while we were teenagers. Like, you know, I knew some older people who would talk about the film and they wouldn't talk about it as, ah, you know, what a sobering look at life. They were like, ah, no, it's just, you know, the way we grew up.
1: Okay, Star Wars. I I don't want to linger on Star Wars for too long. What surprised me watching these two movies in comparison with Star Wars is these two movies interact with the world around them in a way that Star Wars doesn't. Like, Star Wars the whole appeal of it is that it is a i think like purely escapist movie and One of the reasons it was such a cultural phenomenon in 1977 was you had this decade of movies like Straw Dogs or McCabe and Mrs. Miller or The Conversation, you know, lots of downer movies, lots of movies that were uh, Vietnam parables or, you know, dealing with some sort of social ill, revisionist westerns, the the whole jazz. And now here comes a movie that is not revisionist at all. It's actually... It's it's the Flash Gordon serials but with the latest and special effects. It's
0: very clear too. There's good guys and there's bad guys and it's text as part of the movie.
1: And so that was so refreshing. That was so refreshing to people after 10 years of this stuff.
0: Hey, it's refreshing. Hey, eh? choke it down for the next
1: 50 years. And we've been fucking stuck with it ever since and it's never going away. <laughs> no
0: more, um, please. <laughs> That's all I want to say. I mean,
1: oh my God.
0: But if George Lucas hadn't made this, somebody else would have,
1: wouldn't they? Yes, I think so. Somebody else would have figured it out. I mean clearly there were signs that it was happening there was jaws there was superman uh even rocky i think was kind of a step in this direction kind of a feel-good movie but then this movie came along and it and it really opened the floodgates i and you know i don't want to be the guy who like blames george lucas for everything bad that's happened but um uh so i so i won't do that but again it's just interesting to to see star wars and yes it's similar in some ways to thx 1138 but Wow. Uh, It goes so against what the previous two movies did. I mean, the previous two movies made you think of the outside world, encouraged you to think about the outside world, and then Star Wars really closed the door on that. And uh, George Lucas uh, never did anything again. Sorry, all you prequel fans.
0: That's so wild that George Lucas, after being such a hungry filmmaker, I mean, he was one of the co-founders of American Theotrope with Francis Ford. Like He was a young you know, hot gun, and then he makes Star Wars. And it is such a burden to him that he doesn't direct two and three and decides to become then this business manager of an empire. And it does some interesting stuff. I believe it forms the first, you know, version of Pixar. It starts THX, LucasArts, a a video game company. Like he was in charge of a lot of stuff, but dude, just why didn't you make any other movies? I don't understand.
1: Because he didn't have anything left to say. I think that's what it has to come down to. That
0: was it, I guess. I mean, he's still clearly passionate about cinema. He tried to force that museum of, you know, narrative arts uh, for what feels like decades on the property that he owned and the people around him would not let him build it. So there's still a passion there. It's not like purely like, I guess I have all the money and I can do whatever I want with it. I mean, he sold Star Wars just because he wanted to be rid of it, wanted people to stop asking him about
1: it. Since we're uh, doing the George Lucas episode, where do you stand on the prequels?
0: Terrible. I mean, he's trying interesting stuff, and you know, you can listen to interviews with him where he talks about his approach to it, how he wanted to show that, you know, the good guys aren't that good, that they're corrupt. There's a lot of weird new imagery and ideas in it, but it is so dramatically uncompelling, and it's not even weird, like something like THX 1138. It's just so flatly made. Yeah,
1: I mean, I have, I, I, look, I don't like the prequels either. I hate the way they look.
0: And I'll say, yeah, he was a, you know, trailblazer. He was shooting, um, on digital cinematography before anybody was.
1: Doesn't make the movies good, though. It looks, looks like fucking shit if you ask me, but, you know, whatever.
0: And I love the people who hate these new Star Wars movies and they're like, yeah, I guess the prequels were good. It's like, oh my
1: God. Well, yeah, you know, you go on Letterbox and you'll find no shortage of people like talking about uh, fucking Attack of the Clones, and they'll say, "Oh, it's like Murnau, his use of light and shadow." And it's like, "Oh my god, give give me a break!" I have eyes; <laughs> I can see the movie. <laughs> but hey, I I love it when people love movies, so I'm I'm all for that. What you know? What I'll just say is, I think some of the prequel revisionism clearly has to do with the fact that, like them or not, they are the work of a madman. They are the work of like. A crazy guy who's been in his mansion for 20 years. I
0: mean, the prequels were completely independently funded. There was no studio
1: behind them. You know, scenes in those movies like, you know, the famous, I I hate sand, it's coarse and rough, not like you, you're smooth and soft. I mean... Uh, I mean, did, did you hear that that story that uh, uh, he, he he wrote all the prequels in the living room that was built by the guy who cocked him?
0: Yeah, it was the library of the guy that his wife left with. Just the weight of, I assume, the giant chandelier shadow.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, you can you can see that. And you've got you've got a guy who's now writing dialogue like a Jedi can never feel love.
0: <laughs> I mean, George Lucas is a guy that if you watch the making of uh, from the prequel films, which are amazing and show someone way, way out of his depth and trying to keep too much control over things. Like he could do things like, oh, I don't like the way that he's holding um, the character with his left arm. So let's digitally change it to make it the right arm. And it's like who cares? It doesn't matter.
1: Or you know, Jar Jar Binks. I mean, that could only be created by a man who you know just has no one saying no to Will, him.
0: Will, but Jar Jar is the key. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the documentary where George Lucas actually says that he's like, if I go too much over the top, you know, the whole film could fail. So we just got to play that fine line. and We should talk as well, if we're talking George Lucas, his revisionism when it comes to his films, that he cannot create anything new. So he feels the need to perfect what he has done before. As
1: Well, I, I haven't seen, I saw the theatrical cut of THX 1138. I know he drastically changed it for his director's cut. Every
0: shot is changed in the uh, recut version. Yeah. Essentially, he just makes it bigger. He adds tons of CGI stuff. Oh. And- It's not that bad, but it completely kind of takes you out of the very specific 70s claustrophobic mood that the movie has in its original version why would you do that i don't understand the money you would take to add to that film you could have made another five to ten
1: movies george i remember going to see star wars a new hope in the theater during its 1997 re-release with with all the new footage and stuff all the all the new digital effects and it was kind of fun when i was eight years old you know this movie that i'd seen a million times on vhs seeing it in the theater and being like oh here's a new scene here's a new scene oh my god there are new scenes in star wars How
0: jabba the Hot? Wow.
1: How cool is that? And, you know, we've been stuck with it for 25 years since. Now, whenever you see that movie on TV, you've got these horrible 1997 special effects. The
0: fact that George Lucas wouldn't let go of the, like, the old versions, I, I mean, that sucks, man. Like, what do you do? I am
1: coming around to the point of view that it's tragic that he never made another real movie again or another non-Star Wars movie again. Um, because, you know, it's, it's sad to see this like Charles Foster Kane in his mansion, making sure that Greedo shoots first.
0: And because he never made any movies, he couldn't let go of these films because it's all he had, which is why he keeps, you know, retinkering with some McClunky and doing other stuff like that because he has nothing new to bide his time. He is haunted by these Star Wars films. What a nightmare.
1: Don't forget though, that with all of his billions, he now finally gets to make those uh, abstract non-narrative movies that he's been threatening for the last 35 years. Oh,
0: yeah. He's making them like on his compound and nobody gets to see them. Right? Yeah, and it's like
1: Prince's Vault. That when
0: George Lucas finally passes from this world, there'll be like hundreds of films starring famous celebrities. We just don't hear about it because he doesn't release I them. I bet
1: there's nothing very good in there. No.
0: <laughs> what if there is like you know just pure masterworks he has definitely not done anything who are we kidding i
1: haven't seen any pure masterworks in his released movies so i don't know no me neither (laughs) but
0: you know he's been working on it for like 50 years up until now will so maybe he's really honed those skills and
1: talents anyway in conclusion i think there's much to admire in thx 1138 there's much to admire in american graffiti i i uh leave this week appreciating steven spielberg more than i did last you know
0: steven spielberg uh he did do that remastering stuff. Remember on (laughs) E.T.? he's like no more guns and
1: he lived to regret he's it he's
0: disowned it he's like ugh, terrible never gonna do that again those versions will never exist so you know guaranteed no one says no to steven spielberg now but at least he can you know admit his mistakes all right so as per usual you can send us letters at important Cinema club podcast at gmail.com our first letter is from henry nurg and it goes hello i found about your podcast about a month ago via your episode on harold lloyd and i immediately fell in love with you guys i always subscribe to your patreon Thank you. I love the way you combine your impressive knowledge on film history and theory with your childlike enthusiasm that clearly comes from the heart. It's all an act we put on for the podcast. I used to think I know something about cinema myself, but after listening to you, I realized that's definitely not the case. So when I grow up and watch more films, I want to be like you. Listen, everything we say every episode, we forget the second we finish. (laughs) Probably on the same knowledge base as you are. For a while, I've been starting to plan a blog about cinema in my native language with an emphasis on world cinema to give people recommendations they wouldn't otherwise necessarily find. I've been inspired by your podcast because you talk about films and filmmakers in such a way that it really makes me want to go out and see those films myself. Often, especially when reading more academic film criticism, it feels too much of a drag for me to be honest. And I feel that kind of style is definitely too high a hurdle for people who are just getting into cinema. So I want to be able to write in a way that would be in some way accessible for everybody interested in films, even if I were talking about filmmakers, Uh, such as Simon Lang, because I feel you handle that obstacle really well. If you could give me any advice, I'd greatly appreciate it. Will, do you have any advice about talking about films, recommending films that could be considered art accessible to readers?
1: It's hard to say. I mean, everyone has their own style, but I would just say, communicate as clearly as possible why you like the thing, and just have that be your guiding principle. Why do you like the thing? Why do you want someone else to like the thing? What do you want other people to see in that thing? And then just put those words onto paper.
0: And as long as you do it in a clear, non-obtuse style, like I see people on Letterboxd who write very, you know, showing off that I know about this stuff when I'm talking about, I don't know, uh, Adam Sandler's click. And it's like, all right, we get it. (laughs) It makes your writing very difficult to understand. Like, don't be afraid to reference other stuff, but just let there be an entryway point into it. Talk about it with enthusiasm. talk about it just like Will said you know clarify why you like it what you feel the movie brings to the viewer that other films don't like that's why you need to check it out because it will have an experience an emotion that you can pretty much only get from this movie and you know you're writing a blog. Let's be honest. <laughs> just write it. Try not to overthink
1: it, I would say. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is just getting yourself to write
0: Because it. there's a you know million people out there who are not writing anything. So if you write something, you're already one step ahead of them.
1: And the only way you get good at it is to do it. The only way you're a real writer is to write. So write.
0: If you're writing a blog... I doubt anyone will, like, criticize you or say anything. (laughs) It will be, like, throwing words into a void. So don't worry about that.
1: That's the secret. And Justin is saying that, like, like in a downbeat way. But I'm saying it in an upbeat way. Remember, whenever you have a creative project, nobody cares. There is something very liberating about the fact. 100%. Yeah, there's something very liberating about that. Nobody cares, which means nobody cares if you fail, which means there's no such thing as failure. So just do the blog.
0: And if someone, for some reason, criticizes, Criticizes you, you know that person's probably a jackass, right?
1: (laughs) They're probably insecure. That's how it always is.
0: hundred percent. So do it, write it. If you feel passionate about it, just put it into words and out into the world. The letter continues. I'd also love to have an episode on my favorite filmmaker Takashi Miike. And if you're going to do that, please talk about Dead or Alive 2, which, in my opinion, is perhaps the greatest film ever made. Thank you for your podcast and keep up the great work. Well, we
1: should do Takashi Miike. I think the reason we haven't is because I'm a little bit intimidated by the subject. Like, I mean, like anyone, I've seen some Takashi Miike movies that I like. You know, I like Audition. Who doesn't? But he's made over 100 movies, and I can feel very intimidated by that filmography. I bet you, Justin, know more about him than I do. There's
0: a great book written by Tom Mess called Agitator that goes through film by film up to a certain point. Great to get kind of like a handle on Takashi Miike's themes. And, you know, if we did him, I could definitely toss like three movies your way that would cover the gamut of his career. He's kind of slowed down because he became a blockbuster filmmaker just doing big adaptations of anime and mangas he doesn't really do those like little you know personal film that he would just throw out on v cinema
1: anymore which is kind of a bummer I do want to know more about Takashi Miike I mean I've wanted to know more about him for like 15 years now Uh, It's just intimidating, but I I would love to do a deeper dive into him.
0: Our next letter is from Patrick O'Leary and he goes, Hey, important cinema club. I've been listening for a while now and love how you dig films out of those hard to reach places. I've always thought of myself a knowledgeable film fan, but there are still so many filmmakers and subgens and subgenres you have turned me on to Moturn media. For example, I've been logging stats on Letterboxd for a while and find the all time, most watch actors, directors, intriguing. I'm curious of what they are for you too. My most watched actor is Jackie Chan, and most watched director is a three-way tie between Ridley Scott, Buster Keaton, and as Will likes to call him, The Woodman. Are there any surprises on your list? I was surprised to see John Goodman amongst all the obvious actors on my list, but in hindsight, that makes sense. Keep up the great work, PR O'Leary. Will, do you want to bring up Letterboxd and see what you're most watched?
1: Yeah, okay, I'm pulling up my stats. Now, you have to remember, I got Letterboxd. I started using Letterboxd in early 2017, so I had uh, 28 years of movie watching before that so this only represents like the last four years this is what my most watched people are in the last four years in terms of stars uh number one with a bullet is mr jackie chan followed by bella lugosi and charlie chaplin and also samuel l jackson believe it or not i
0: mean samuel jackson is my number one 59 films
1: i'm I'm actually not so i'm not surprised samuel l jackson is in an insane number of movies
0: i will tell you why he's there so often
1: marvel movies marvel and then you know also if you watch a couple of star wars movies he's in there too but yeah marvel is is the key
0: i'm just gonna read off this list because uh i got sam samuel L. jackie chan sam mo hung yung Yu, william defoe dick miller nicholas cage bruce willis john goodman and oh i love that he's on this list philip co
1: okay in terms of directors uh number one uh, with 26 films since 2007. Yes, it is Mr. Woody Allen, folks.
0: Woody Allen does not even crack my... Oh, he's not even on my wow. list. I
1: I mean, I just want to say it says 26 films, but I have seen all of Woody Allen's films across my life. So, you know, he probably is my most watched director ever, I'm going to say. My
0: top directors will shock no one. Albert Pyun, Troy Hark, Steven Soderbergh, Martin Scorsese,
1: and Lockhart. Harlund. Yeah, Martin Scorsese's up there for me too. And uh, Howard Hawks, is number two. My girlfriend and I embarked on a Howard Hawks project a couple years ago and we've got up to 24 movies, but that's like only halfway.
0: Oh, God. Are you ever going to complete it? Do them all? Well,
1: I hope so, but it's been four years. <laughs>
0: four years. I remember you're like, I will peel this off in a couple months. and then.
1: You Here's know. the thing. I don't think she likes the John Wayne ones as much as I do. So and there are still a lot of those to get And
0: through. I'm looking here. Nothing very uh, that exciting, except that uh, in cinematography, I do have... Gary Graver making the list at 19 films. (laughs) And Mars is on my most watched actors list as well. For
1: cinematographer, my most watched is, oh, believe it or not, Sean Price Williams with 14.
0: Really? I got Roger Deakins at 22. Followed by Steven Soderbergh and Arthur Wong Knocktai, who's probably the most famous Hong Kong uh, cinematographer to ever work in the industry. And he shot like uh, Knockoff, Iron Monkey, Crime Story, Once Upon a Time in China, Operation Condor, Eastern Condors, uh, 36 Chambers, Dirty Ho. So, yeah, he's got a lot of credits to his name.
1: I I just want to say I'm very happy to say that Joe D'Amato makes my top 10 of directors. So
0: (laughs) does he your top 10? Yeah. Let me see if he's on there. I don't think I've watched that many. Yeah, not that many like really funny top uh, ten directors. I do have Jim Wynorski and Ferdinand Ray on like the most watched. Okay,
1: I'll I'll give you my uh, top my top ten since 2017. It's it's Woody Allen, Howard Hawks, Martin Scorsese, Jess Franco, Edgar G. Ulmer, William Bodine. <laughs> How many William Bodine films did you watch? I've seen 17 William Bodine films since then. Uh, wow. Jean, Jean-Luc Godard, Lucio Fulci, Joe D'Amato, and Abel Ferreira. That's the top 10. Um, embarrassing that there are no women on there. I'm sorry. Unfortunately,
0: women have not had the chances that a lot of these men have had to make as many movies that would allow them to appear on this top 10 list.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. It's, it's structural problems. It's not us. I
0: mean, the Woodman, he made a movie every year, like, that's why he made the <laughs> top 10 of your list that's the only reason because he just made so many movies and you had to watch that's him. right you That's know, right. uh mr woodman he was the original marvel films for uh, new york intellectuals <laughs> all right so thank you very much for that letter and as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com So, what are we
1: doing on our Patreon episode this week, Will? Well, we're talking about everyone's favorite funny man, Super Dave Osborne. You know
0: him, you love him. The stuntman that always fails. But is there more to him than just being crushed, squished, or hit by a train? Well, you have to listen to the episode to find out where we discuss his... 2000. Yes, you heard that right. 2000. The Extreme Adventures of Super Dave.
1: That's right. He made a movie. There's a Super Dave movie and it was made and released by a major studio. A
0: narrative film. Uh, We didn't point out in the episode. It did go direct to video. It was not a theatrical picture even though it was meant to be you can listen to that by going to patreon.com slash cinema club next week will what are we doing
1: well uh we're going back into schlock and trash again we're going to be talking about the preeminent schlockmeister of our time and don't worry folks we will get back to art one of these days but right now we are in the trash heap. We're talking about David Dakota. Who is David Decoto, Justin?
0: David Decoto is a man who has done it all. He has directed pornography. He has directed horror films for Full Moon. He has directed personal pictures like Leather Jacket Love Story. And he has made a cottage industry of having hunky, shirtless young men in their tidy whities run around big abandoned
1: mansions, sometimes in horror pictures, sometimes in kids' films. And yeah, that's basically his career at this point. He has constantly tried to reinvent himself for the direct-to-video market in whatever the market is as the market has got bigger and bigger, people like him have had to make smaller and smaller movies to survive. And in recent years, in the last 10 or 15 years, his movies have proliferated all over all sorts of streaming services, probably the most famous of which is a little movie called A Talking Cat.
0: (laughs) That's right. He directed A Talking Cat, as well as many other films. He has a hundred and seventy six credits to his name and i
1: think he's somebody who i don't think he would call himself an artist i don't think even i would call him an artist but he especially in recent years has really come into a distinctive style that is purely him let nobody else makes movies like this man so to
0: cover the career of a man with so many credits. We gotta hit all the high points. So sorority babes in the slime ballorama.
1: The slime ball bolorama. Slime
0: ball bolorama. Sorry, Will. <laughs> we also have his personal film, leather
1: jacket love
0: story, and uh, one of the uh, thirteen thirteen films that. Why
1: are they called thirteen thirteen? Will according to him, at least in those days of streaming platforms, movies with. Numbers in the title would show up first in a search result.
0: And that's the only reason those movies have that title. Now, I'm not going to make Will watch this, but did you know that David Dakota had one for him that he made in
1: 2014 called Knock 'em Dead? I did know that because I saw him talk about it on Trailers from Hell.
0: Where the gimmick was that he had a script that he just genuinely wanted to shoot, that it was. Uh, written by Barry Sandler, who's most famous for writing such films as Crimes of Passion. He did a bunch of Agatha Christie adaptations like Evil Under the Sun and The Mirror Cracked. So he made a murder mystery and the only way he could get the money to do it was if he made it with an all-black cast. Oh, man, we got to talk about David Dakota is the king of casting forgotten stars in new movies because he just wants to hang out with them.
1: I love this about him. David Dakota is James genuinely a movie buff and
0: i think that's why we're excited to talk about him as well like if he was purely a i just crank him out to make the bucks like that wouldn't be very uh, fun to discuss but that's not 100 percent the case anyway don't want to get too much into it we'll talk about it next week and until then my i'm justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening <laughs> I sat down recently and I wanted to watch something that I basically had no interest in as I did some menial physical tasks. And I don't know how it happened, but suddenly a little film seemingly unreleased called A Rainy Day in New York was playing on my screen.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm I'm familiar with it, Justin.
0: <laughs> now, this was uh, Mr. Allen's last picture, I believe, like that was about to be released, right?
1: You're, you're forgetting a little movie called Rifkin's Festival.
0: I know it wasn't his last film, but it was the last one that was meant to get a theatrical release.
1: Yeah, I mean, this one, it was part of his big, like, multi-picture contract with Amazon, and it was filming, like, it had big stars, and it was filming When Me Too. Scott. Oh, this movie. What a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, it, it's it's very bad. So the difference between you and me is because because I grew up with him because, like, I love his movies because I have, like, a soft spot for him. I have a... A sickness in my brain where I enjoy watching even the bad ones like I like you can put me in front of you know Hollywood Ending or Curse of the Jade Scorpion and I'm gonna have a good time and I'm gonna find it interesting partly because it's bad
0: I enjoy Hollywood Ending Shot by a very famous Chinese cinematographer.
1: Uh, Hollywood ending's good because it has a lot of funny schtick in it. He's doing, you know, physical gags. But,
0: I mean, Timothy Chalamet doing a Woody Allen impersonation.
1: Oh, oh boy. I want to I hear more about your reaction to it. Why didn't you like it?
0: I just found it boring. I didn't find it particularly funny. It was kind of meandering. <laughs> and it has this insane twist at the end where little rich boy's mother is like, oh, I was once a prostitute, but now I am the belle of the ball. <laughs> and I'm like,
1: what the Fuck? That movie is just f- full of scenes that could have used a couple more rewrites. I mean, it is just pure, like, first draft cinema, isn't so it? So
0: disconnected from any, like, you know, living person who has not been a millionaire and hasn't had interactions with anybody who has had a real life in decades.
1: There's a scene in Rifkin's Festival when Wallace Sean is talking to, like, this woman in, uh, fuck, wherever it is, San Sebastian that he has a crush on. He finds out that she used to live in New York and he says to her, oh, New York, I did did you used to go to the match? Did you, uh, how about Central Park? Did you visit Central Park? He's, he's rattling off these things and I'm thinking, like, Woody Allen, you've lived in New York for 85 five years, and the best you can come up with is the Matt Central Park I mean, I could come up with anyone could come up with that. That's that's not New York. <laughs> How old is he now? He's, he's in his mid 80s. I think he might be 85 or 86. And
0: you think he'll still crank them out once a year? Because he's going to France, right? Well, you know, the land of the Gerard Depardieu is where
1: you yeah, keep working here. No problem. Well, first of all, I hope he keeps cranking them out. And that's an unfashionable thing to say now. But here's my rationale. I think Rainy Day in New York and Rifkin's Festival reach a new level for him. They are a kind of, they're a next level of badness for him. They're a new kind of blinkered alien alien, kind of film that i kind of want to see him keep going i want to see how far he can go in that bad direction
0: how much worse can you get than
1: those movies though i think he'll he'll find a way
0: i mean rifkin's festival it literally is made by a hundred year old man who has not seen a new movie in 40 years well
1: just while we're on the subject of the woodman uh, i will say that i recently watched annie hall again uh which i hadn't seen in quite a while and i thought it was fantastic
0: i'm currently screenshotting this conversation will to post it
1: on twitter you're gonna dunk me you're gonna (laughs) yeah
0: annie Hall's great i don't know like woody allen terrible guy but hey annie hall's good there's a reason that everybody loved it for so long
1: oh yeah well i mean rainy day new york is just is in itself an incredible testament to how good annie hall was because it's 40 years later and the director has been accused of pedophilia and yet timothy chalamet still wants to recapture a bit of that annie hall magic that's that's how good that movie was i
0: mean rainy day in new york the difference between it and annie hall is like there's no jokes there's no inventions, there's nothing going on no
1: texture like rainy day in new york doesn't feel like like what blew me away about annie hall watching it again was it actually felt like it took place in the real new york it felt like it took place in Like the dialogue, the things that people were referencing, it felt like it was made by somebody who was plugged into the socio-intellectual scene in New York at that time. That's because
0: he was. And now he's not because he's so popular. I mean, not popular. He's just been so rich. (laughs)
1: He's never been more unpopular. So I'm sorry you didn't like it. Did you enjoy Griffin Newman? Uh, The one scene that he had?
0: (laughs) Listen, I've been listening to Blank (laughs) Check. I've been enjoying it. So I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) The uh, dedication of podcasts could spend two and a half hours on one movie. Oh, I can't even imagine it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, good on them.
0: What I'm trying to say is, blank check. I, you should get, invite me on as a guest.
1: Please. <laughs> You're gonna ditch this pop stand to finally get on a real film podcast. No,
0: no, no. I'm just gonna use it as an advertising stand. Every second sentence out of my mouth will be, "Oh yeah, me and my pal Will on the Important Cinema Club, a weekly podcast." Ah, that we do. thank you. Just every third sentence. That's what I want.